So, Saul has just been anointed and confirmed king. The people of Israel seem pleased, with the exception you know, of a few who ask, can this king save us? Saul might look tall and kingly, but can he get the job done? You know, I ended last week by saying that this is the question going forward. Can Saul save them? Well, in chapter 11, Saul's leadership will be tested and we will have the chance to see if Saul can save his people. So here are my three points. What we're going to see in chapter 11 is one, a new threat from an old enemy to a sec- an opportunity for a new king. And then finally, a renewed commitment to God's kingship. So first, a new threat from an old enemy. You know, after the events of chapter 10, we kind of get the impression uh, that everyone just went home. No real changes have been made and no one went to work organizing a new administration. There was no building team assembled to construct a palace for their newly elected king. There's no mention of Saul taking the initiative to gather with his valiant men at a round table to discuss the Philistine problem. Everyone just went home. But some 40 miles northeast of Saul's home in Gibeah, trouble is brewing. The Ammonites, Israel's historic rivals, are creating unrest east of the Jordan. The Ammonites and Israelites have long been antagonistic towards each other. And the origins of this conflict conflict goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 23, where we see the Ammonites refuse to give food and water to the Israelites after their departure from Egypt. And then in Judges 10, we read that the Ammonites greatly oppressed the people of God. Well, that is until the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah in Judges 11. And we read that he devastated them. But now the threat is renewed with a new king who goes by the name of Nahash. This is the first mention of him in the Old Testament. And if first impressions tell us a lot about a person, then what we see in Nahash is not good. I mean, look at verse one. It says, now Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh Gilead said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I will only make a treaty with you only on one condition, that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you as so to bring disgrace on all Israel. Wow. I mean, this guy is serious. I mean, it seems as if Nahash is out for revenge for the defeat inflicted by Jephthah in Judges 11. And tradition has it that he has already gouged out the eyes of the tribes of Gad and Reuben, with the exception of 7,000 who managed to escape here to Jabez Gilead which explains why he's besieged the city. So nervous about what might possibly transpire, we read that all the men, Jabesh, go out and ask for a treaty. 
But Nahash is not interested in the treaty. He's interested in their eyeballs. I mean, he wants to humiliate them and make it impossible for their fighting men to ever mount an attack against him in the future. So the elders of Jabesh, verse three, ask Nahash to give them a week. And if no one comes to their rescue, then essentially they would agree to become his blind slaves. And so we read he agrees, but not because this is some unspoken rule of war. I mean, this is not a favor or courtesy. I mean, Nahash knows that there is no one in Israel to save them. He didn't hear about Saul. So he's saying to them, look, you go out and gather all the people that you can. That will just give me an opportunity to make all of Israel my slaves. Now, what is interesting is that in this scene, we get a glimpse into just how faithless Israel has become. The threat of Nahash has caused them to lose all of their confidence in God. Apparently, Nahash was too big of a threat even for God to handle. I mean, God can deliver them from the might of the Egyptians. I mean, he can even single handedly go against the Philistines in chapter five without their help. But Nahash, well, Nahash is a different animal. I mean, he gouges out people's eyes. The threat of Nahash has so gripped them with fear that, look, that they are willing to compromise their identity as the people of God in order to become his slaves. But fear will do that to you. It will put you in a fight or flight mode where the only thing that matters is self-preservation, self-preservation, not conviction. You see, it's not hard at this point to draw similarities between the hostilities Israel faced and the hostility the church faces today. The question we must ask ourselves is, have we lost confidence in God? You see, it is a common experience for Christians to feel that they are in a hostile world surrounded by their enemies. And this hostility can lead to fear where we tend to magnify the threats more than we magnify God. And when God becomes small compared to the threats we face, we are more likely to give in to them. Whether it's a particular struggle with sin or whether it's people's expectations or whether it's the pressure to acquiesce our gospel convictions out of fear of opposition from culture. You know, the Apostle Paul lived with a constant threat of being a Christian in a hostile world. And his words to the church in Corinth was, yes, we are pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. See, Paul didn't despair because he knew that Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father and he was reigning with all power and authority. And so he knew that even if Jesus didn't deliver him from the threats, he knew that Jesus would bring him through it. But the children of Israel seem to be in despair in these verses. 
They are hopeless. They are at a place where they are willing to accept defeat. But once again, God in his mercy has heard their cry. This crisis seems tailor-made for this newly appointed king. And he is about to answer the question posed by the scoundrels in chapter 10. Can this man save us? And that leads to my second point, an opportunity for a king. So look, we read in verses four to five that messengers came from that messengers came and approached Gibeah of Saul and reported these threats to the people. Now, notice that they don't ask for Saul. Now, isn't that interesting? They don't approach Gibeah, his hometown, and ask, where is our newly elected king? Instead, we read that they wept. They told the news of what Ahaz was doing, and all the people began to weep. It's like the events of chapter 10 had never happened. They seem to have forgotten that God had given them a king to fight their battles. He confirmed it through his prophet Samuel. They forgot that they were there when they shouted, long live the king. So the question is, well, then why wasn't Saul on anyone's radar? Why wasn't he summoned? Because Saul went back to the farm. Instead of figuring out how to organize a kingdom, he just went back home to plow his father's fields. Maybe the people despaired because they didn't see Saul as being kingly. Maybe they were turned off by his display of cowardice and fear and hiding behind the baggage or luggage in chapter 10. And it's possible that... The impressions of him as their king just went away when they saw him going back to the farm. But all of this was about to change. In verse five, we read, just then Saul comes in from the field and hears the people wailing and adds, what is wrong with everyone? Why is everyone crying? So then the people tell him about Nahash's threats. And we read in verse six that when he hears this, the spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And look, this this wasn't a selfish anger that often leads to sin. This was righteous indignation that burned against Nahash's violent threats against the people of God. Saul is at last being stirred to action. No, he didn't move against the Philistine outpost in chapter 10 when the spirit of God came upon him. But now he's being led by the spirit. And so we read in verse seven that Saul then takes a pair of oxen and he cuts them into pieces and sent messengers throughout Israel proclaiming that this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Here we see Saul goes from being a shy country boy to being a man of action. Notice how the narrator seems to be depicting Saul as a sort of super judge. I mean, he is the second Samson. The same expression of the spirit of the Lord coming powerfully upon him is also used in Judges chapter 14, 
verse 19 to describe how God stirred up Samson to move against the Philistines. And notice how Saul's rage was inspired by God's spirit. And so the people's response to Saul was also brought by the hand of God. And we read that they came together as one, 330 to be exact. They came out to fight, rallying behind their leader, not out of fear of man, but out of fear of God. See, when the spirit of the Lord fell upon Saul, he became bold and confident. And what we see is that the people also regained their confidence in the Lord. So Samuel tells the messengers in verses 9 to 10, he says, Let Jabesh Gilead know that salvation is coming. And by the time the sun rises in the morning, their weeping will be turned to joy. And at this point, you can't help but think of the words of David in Psalm 35. That weeping may endure for a night. But joy comes in the morning. Morning will bring news of God's unfailing love for his people. A rescue is coming. And we read that the people are elated. But the folks of Jabez Gilead decided to be a little cheeky. So they send a message to the Ammonites, tricking them into believing that they would give themselves over the following day. So Nahaz is expecting an armistice, probably has his men up all night sharpening their swords, you know, getting them ready and prepared for some early morning eye gouging. Whereas Samuel is mobilizing his men, separating them into three squads, probably took this from Gideon's playbook in Judges chapter seven before his battle with the Midianites. And the final few verses of the chapter describes the results. It reads that before daybreak, the army of Israel strikes and the battle rages into the heat of the day. But in the end, the arrogant Ammonites are scattered and humiliated. God has broken the bow of the enemy and he has exalted the horn of his anointed one. Finally, we see God's man doing God's work, gaining victory for his people, not in his own power, but in the spirit's power. And you can't help but think, oh, the difference the spirit makes. Now, look, we shouldn't think that what Saul experienced here is the same as regeneration or what we as Christians might call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is what we have. No, what Saul had was a temporary blessing of God's power by his spirit. But we should also note that the same spirit that fell upon Saul is the same spirit that's living within us as followers of Jesus Christ. And this same spirit empowers us to witness. He emboldens us to be courageous and steadfast in the midst of a hostile world. He leads us and he guides us into all truth. 
He gives us victory over sin. And he testifies to our spirit that God is our father and we are his children. Oh, what a difference the spirit of God makes in our lives. And look at the difference it made in Saul's life. And not only in his life, but in the lives of those whom he was called to lead. Saul was given the opportunity to prove himself as king, and he passed. And he passed because he trusted God. And it was this victory that solidified Saul's position as king. It's what made the people say, yeah, look, we can follow this guy because this guy follows God. But will it last? Will it always stay that way with Saul? I mean, he seems to be starting out well, but will he continue to allow God to use him for his merciful purposes? Or will he be a painful reminder to his people that there are no substitutes for God? And I guess that's the question for church leaders today. It's not about how you start, but it's about how you finish. But right now, the people of God are celebrating. And in the midst of their celebration, the people remember those who questioned Saul's ability to lead them. And we read that they demanded in verse 12 that they be handed over to be put to death. But notice what Saul does. Saul says, no, not today. He extends mercy to these men because he recognizes that this victory belonged to God and not to him. Verse 13, he says, for this day was the Lord who rescued Israel. See, these men must not be put to death because they asked if I could save them. Because the answer to that question is. No, only God can save you. I was just the vessel God used, and therefore all the glory and the honor belongs to him. Saul doesn't take credit for it, but he gives the glory to God. And this leads to my last point, which is a renewed commitment to God's kingdom. Verse 14 reads, Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. Now, you you can't help but wonder, like, what, what did he mean by renew? What is this renewing? I mean, it can't be a renewal of Saul's kingship because it hasn't even been established yet. There's nothing to renew. But notice the place where they are called to renew the kingship. It's in Gilgal. Now, Gilgal is significant because it was a memorial for the Israelites to remind them and their descendants of the power of God and how he had dried up the Jordan River so that they can walk through it just as he had done to the Red Sea. And you can find this in Joshua 
chapter 4, verses 21 to 24. So Gilgal is their place of remembrance. So in light of this, what they are renewing is their allegiance to the rule and kingship of Yahweh. They are making a fresh commitment to put the kingdom of God first and to live under his word through the prophet Samuel and to be led by his anointed king, Saul. And so this renewal is setting Saul's kingdom in its proper relations to the Lord's kingdom. Because remember, Saul is not to be a king instead of God, but a king under God. Because in this battle, they remember that only God can rescue his people. You see, the theme of 1 Samuel 11 is God's salvation. God comes to the rescue of his people. Our rescue, in similar in many ways to the rescue of Jabesh Gilead. The story in 1 Samuel 11, like so many others in the Old Testament, is a shadow or hint of what Jesus would do. See, like the men of Jabesh Gilead, we're hopeless against our enemy. We are weak and needy. We are prone to surrender. We are prone to capitulate and compromise at the first sign of trouble. We doubt anyone can or will help us. But then Jesus Christ comes and he fights for us. He comes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so this story should remind us that our rescuer has come, that the gospel we proclaim is one of rescue. Jesus came. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again. He conquered death. And in his victory, we have been freed from the power of sin and death. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. And as Paul reminds the Thessalonians, we have been rescued from the wrath of God. So look, my encouragement to you today is if you're feeling fearful and unable to face the Nahashes in your life, then I want you to do two things. Remember the Gilgals in your life. Those places where you can remember that God is greater than any threat or fear you may face. Those places where you can remember the great things that God has done for you. Those places where you can remember his power at work in your life. And then finally, trust the Spirit's power to help you fight your battles. And look, we can grow in our trust in the Spirit through prayer and in our obedience to the Word of God. You see, the more we pray and trust God's Word, the more we'll grow in our confidence in what Christ can do. The Lord has worked salvation for us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's our rescuer. So let's trust Him to overcome all the threats we may face in this life. Amen.